Welcome to Wisdom for Life, where we sit through philosophy find practical advice that you can use in your everyday life. Hi, I'm Dan Hayes, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Greg Sadler, and today we're talking about... The trolley problem, or rather trolley problems in the plural, and we brought this topic up previously in episode 22, which focused on thought experiments, and we talked about several different types of thought experiments, the trolley problem being one of them. So now we're going to do a deeper dive. And the first thing that we have to talk about is, well, what is the trolley problem? Because I think a lot of people assume that they know exactly what it is. And this is not helped by popular culture. For example, the good place where they you know, tell you what the trolley problem with. And I actually put capital T, capital H, capital E in our show notes. Um, it's not actually the single unique trolley problem, nor the even original one. So, you know, we can think about, well, where do people get this idea from? Partly it's from pop culture. And we're going to talk a lot about that. And if you've ever had a intro to philosophy or an ethics class, you probably ran into the trolley problem. As a matter of fact, teaching those classes, I often have students bring up trolley problems to me, even if I don't bring them up myself, <laughs> right? So there, there's a lot that we um, want to cover in this. Uh, Dan, do you want to talk about the, 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 the conception of the trolley problem that is out there now? The It's not the original one, but it's the, what should we call it? The predominant one. Predominant one. The predominant one um, is that there is a... Um, a trolley, which is going down track and it's going down an incline, and the brakes fail. And uh, also, the conductor is also um, failed in that uh, he is like passed out. And you happen to be standing by on the side, and there is a switch that will change the trolley from the current track to another track. The problem is that the current track, if you do nothing, you stand by and, you know, by act of omission, do nothing, the trolley goes down and hits and kills five people who just happen to be tied to the track. Um, or, you know, I guess you could also they say could be like, standing there's around, five workers yeah. that are standing in front of the track and they're so engrossed in their work that, you know, they uh, don't see the trolley coming. Um, and if you switch the track, then it will uh, switch to an adjacent track in which only one person will be hit and killed by the trolley. And, you know, one of the biggest things with these types of thought experiments is that they are, like, really narrowly defined in order to try to elicit a specific conversation from the like the people that are talking about them. And, you know, as Greg is and I both know that whenever you're in one of these, especially intro ethics classes, people try to wriggle out of yeah, this yeah. in any way possible. It's like, oh, well, what if I had like a boulder or like, you know, I could just push it or, you know, they'd find any way to try to not actually have to deal with the dilemma that is faced. But um, that's the whole point of these. And, and that's not just a problem with the trolley problem. It's any sort of thought experiment. There's something about human nature that, that that's like, I want to screw with this. I want to, uh, as Dan said, try to wriggle my way out of the confines. And it, it, it's, it's a different thought experiment if you start adding in all sorts of provisos and and you know so like if you have 10 tracks now it's not the original 
well, it's not even still the original trolley problem, but it's it's a it's a less original trolley problem, if indeed still a trolley problem. Um, and part of what we're going to the point oh, here go is to, to present a particular moral dilemma. Yeah, and uh, a lot of times they're like, "Well, what is some way that I can make it so no one there is no dilemma at all?" And now you've gotten away from the whole point of having the conversation <laughs> in the first place, right? You know, and it's sort of like that game that. There was even a whole book out uh, along these lines, almost like Mad Libs were when we were younger. Um, would you rather, right? Would you rather do A or would you rather do B? And it's a moral dilemma. There's some sort of ethical problem. It's not just would you rather eat worms or, I don't know, swallow slugs or something like that where it's just gross. It, it, it has to do with key ideas of ethics like rights or harms and benefits or duties or, or things like that. I did want to like, uh, oh, go ahead. W- would you rather fight um, a hundred duck sized elephants or one <laughs> elephant sized duck? Yeah. And then, you know, somebody's going to say, well, I, br- I give the duck a, a cracker and now it likes me and now I'm no longer in the problem. Um, <laughs> right. So one of the things that I came across in, in doing a little bit of uh, show, show research for this was that um, even dictionaries get the trolley problem, as I put it here, adorkably wrong. Like the Merriam-Webster online dictionary frames it as a matter of utilitarianism, which is a word, versus deontologicalism, which is not a word, which, you know, <laughs> in a dictionary, using a word that's not a word, that seems to be a bit of a, a problem. So there's something about this that kind of gets people deranged. And, you know, there there is an original trolley problem, which we could, you know, this is a, an open topic. Should we call this the, you know, capital T trolley problem because it's the original one? It's it's something quite different in which there's a trolley going down the tracks, like like Dan just talked about forcing you to choose between killing five or killing one. But that's only part of the problem. And we find this articulated in, a, in an article in the 1960s by the great uh, philosopher Philippa Foote. And then that's given fuller scope and interesting variance by Judith Jarvis Thompson, who's writing mostly in legal journals, uh, uh, but she's also an important philosopher. So we're going to talk about a lot of different things in this episode. We're going to do some intellectual history first, and then we're going to talk about some of the questions this, this raises and then how this turned into memes what kind of memes you know these aren't actually richard dawkins memes uh even his notion of meme didn't hold still and we're going to talk about a lot of the applications that people make of this it's not all just conundrums in ethics classes or funny episodes on the good place or or things like that so philippa foot right she's a major uh moral philosopher of the 20th century, known for a lot of stuff besides the trolley problem, but this is something quite important. Um, And the first, so this is where the first trolley problem comes from. She's not particularly interested in trolleys for their own sake. It's called the problem of abortion and the doctrine of the double effect. And so she's using these cases to try to think about, you know, real life situations with abortion. And, um, 
She brings up the trolley as just one interesting idea. We, and we should talk very quickly about double effect. Dan and I were kicking around how deep we should go into this. I think just one line from her thing is probably enough for, for illuminating it. And we can do a whole episode on this if people are really interested. So if you are, then you know maybe write us or make some comments. She says, the doctrine of double effect is based on a distinction between what a man foresees as a result of his voluntary action and what, in the strict sense, he intends. And so that's, that's the core of the idea. There's a difference between foreseeing that your actions are going to lead to something and actually intending it. So, you know, when you, for example... Um, say something to somebody that needs to be said, you can foresee it's probably going to hurt their feelings, but that's not what you're actually intending to do. You might be intending to keep them from blowing their life savings in a get-rich-quick scheme, right? And right. so, you know, we want to be able to make that kind of distinction. And that's that's what she was trying to aim at in this this entire set of problems that she brought forward some of which involve trolleys go ahead you were gonna it goes further into this of like both the the act uh and what the intention of the act is um if that uh direct intention is supposed to be good or bad yeah but also being aware of what any of these indirect results of these could be in themselves them bad and so you know if you are once again aiming for some good thing even though you know that there's some bad thing that is going to happen um that is still in itself good um yeah the goodness is not the goodness of the good part is not eliminated you might say mm -hmm. by the the accompanying or foreseen badness you know so for example like because this is talking like about abortion, yeah. they're talking about a couple different examples of this. Um, under this doctrine, it is saying that if you're going to perform something that is um, directly causing the death of the child, um, even if it is to protect the, the mother, um, that would still be a bad because that is the, the direct intention. Um, but if you're doing something that um, is to save the uh, life of the, the mother, but indirectly causes the death of the child, yeah, that yeah. is a good thing. So, for example, this would be if they had a cyst on, or a, uh, a cancerous tumor on their uh, reproductive or organs that had to be removed through a hysterectomy, yeah. this is still a good thing, even though the uh, ancillary effect is the death of the child. You know, know another, another medical ethics case like that comes up when you have... Um multiple children in gestation and one of them is probably not going to make it and they wind up being you know a drain upon or, or a threat to the mother and the other children i mean that's a very difficult situation but the doctrine of double effect allows you to say in order to save the life of you know, these others, and you could do it in kind of a utilitarian way where you're trying to maximize benefit, minimize harm. Um, you can, you can do that. So yeah, and Foote was very interested in these kinds of, uh, cases, um, which were, you know, 1967, this was becoming quite an issue in the Britain and America of her time. And it might be again. 
Yeah. So let's let's come back to her article. So um, she she talks about like the case of a judge who would execute somebody or find you know find subject somebody to to execution in order to uh, assuage a mob that would otherwise hurt people or, or kill other people. And then she brings up the trolley and she says to make the parallel as close as possible, it may be supposed that he is the driver of a runaway tram. Notice a tram, not trolley, uh, which he can only steer from one narrow track onto another. Five men are working on one track and one man in the other. Anyone on the track he enters is bound to be killed. Now, notice there's no bystander at the switch. Mm-hmm. It's the guy running the trolley itself who has to make the decision. And the actual problem, the way that she frames it, is like this. The question is why we would say without hesitation that the driver should steer for the less occupied track, while most of us would be appalled at the idea that the innocent man would be framed by the judge for mob justice. And then she brings up another case to make this even uh, another set of cases to make this even more clear. We are about to give a patient who needs it to save his life a massive dose of a certain drug in short supply. There arrive, however, five other patients, each of whom could be saved by one-fifth of that dose. We say with regret that we cannot spare our whole supply of the drug for a single patient. We feel bound to let one man die rather than many if that is our only choice. So that's like the trolley problem, right? With the trolley problem, it's going down the track to hit somebody in this case, with the drugs, people are going to die. The question is how you're going to apportion the death that's that's going to take place. And then she says, why then do we not feel justified in killing people in the interests of cancer research? Because, you know, if you're going to follow this kind of like utilitarian reasoning, well, maybe it's okay to, to kill one person instead of, you know, letting others uh, die in their place, uh, or to obtain, and here, here we're starting to get to the, the one that's going to become the hospital or surgeon example. Um, why can we not take spare parts for grafting onto those who need them? Or we could suppose similarly that several dangerously ill people can be saved only if we kill a certain individual and make a serum from his dead body. Now, Foote thinks that those cases are different. So on the one hand, we have trolley problems and, you know, rationing drugs, or it could be rationing uh, COVID vaccines or rationing antibiotics or anything else that we want. On the other side, we have cases where we actively kill somebody in order to save five other people by means of something, you know, coming from from their body. Um, And she wants to say, why are these different from each other? Because she thinks that you and me and everybody else will naturally say, well, it's it's fine to change the course of the trolley, which turns out not everybody is cool with, right? Right. And we're also all going to say, no, no, you can't, for example, take an innocent person and harvest their five, you know, organs from you know from their body to save five people who who need organs um so go ahead uh so she proposes another like accesses for us to look at this through a different way another uh you know a prism to look at both through acts of omission and commission but also through these ideas of positive and negative rights which you know positive rights result in positive duties and so that 
you know, would result in a right to be positively benefited by another. Mm -hmm. And negative rights lead to negative duties, which leads to the right not to be harmed. Yeah. You could think of and, Go ahead. And so, especially for like the, the trolley problem, you know, that we're, we're standing on the side of the track versus Philippa's version of the trolley problem where you are in the conductor uh, seat. Now you have two different um, ideas of what your rights are. Uh, as the actual conductor, you have a positive right to try to, you know, to try uh, to actually steer the train in a way that reduces, you know, uh, the loss of life. Whereas if you are just a bystander, you never had that positive duty enforced upon you because you were not in the position of actually being the train driver. You know, she doesn't actually consider the bystander at the switch. It's that that's later with you. With you are Judith correct. Thompson. She's yeah. This is, uh, um, but she does, uh, specifically bring up these these positive negative rights. Maybe that's better, uh, example exemplified in, uh, when she was talking about, um, doing the uh the difference between, um, that and the, uh framing a innocent mm. person in order to start stop a mob yeah who is who are going to kill five other people and so yeah she sees these cases as qualitatively different from each other and and the real interesting question here is i mean we there's actually several because we can say well do people really view things the way that that she does and we're going to talk about that a little bit later when we get to the psychology and the experiments as it turns out no <laughs> <laughs> but she says okay assume that people actually do see these as different from each other why are they different from each other let's provide a philosophical explanation because a lot of people can have a gut sense that oh yeah these are different i would decide this one differently than this one but articulating it that's a bit difficult to do so this leads us to Judith Thompson, who is looking at it from a legal perspective. And she has a couple different articles, um, one of which is called Killing, Letting Die, and the Trolley Problem. And then she has one that's just called the Trolley Problem. And this is the one that I, I usually teach in my classes. And she is the one who's responsible for taking Foote's cases and then adding variants of her own to the mix and labeling them, too. You know, that, that's important in philosophy. you got to have a nice, catchy title. And so she coins the, um, the real iconic contemporary trolley problem, which is bystander at the switch. And she asks, why is it that the trolley driver can turn his trolley, though the surgeon may not remove the young man's lungs, kidneys, and heart? In both cases, one will die if the agent acts, but five will live who otherwise would die, which is a net saving of four lives. What difference in the other facts of these cases explains the moral difference between them? And, you know, it's by manipulating the scenario that you can, you can get to what, what, what the difference is. And she goes, she goes through kind of a cool, um, maybe it's this. No, it's not that, uh, sequence of proposals before she finally settles on how it becomes, um, okay to do one, but not the other. And she, and she proposes a lot of cool, um, 
new new cases, the bystander at the switch, the one that Dan narrated at the start. You're you're the one who actually controls which way the runaway trolley goes, whether you flip a switch or not. Now, flipping a switch is a positive action. Mm-hmm. Letting the trolley run over people, uh, you didn't you didn't make the scenario, right? And then there's Fat Man, where you, instead of having a switch, you're on a bridge, and you could push a Fat Man off that bridge, and he would stop the trolley. That's a bit different. She thinks that that's different than flipping <laughs> a switch. Mafia guys on the track is another one. What if the five guys were actually mafiosos, and you would be, you know, increasing the net happiness of the world by letting the trolley run over them should you should you not flip the switch then should you allow them to get hit then there's another one and this is really quite contrived a mayor makes a promise (laughs) where there's five workmen on the track and then there's a, a length of track where there's a guy eating and he's eating there precisely because the mayor has told him that there will never be a trolley going down that track so the mayor has made a promise to this guy and the mayor is the one who has to decide do these change how we should answer the question i mean and i think with the mafia one i mean i'll tell you my take and then i want to hear what your take is on this definitely we we let the trolley run over the five guys in that case because mm-hmm. we don't you know the the one guy um, he's just sort of neutral. What, mm. what, what would you do? So like the immediate answer seems to be similar to yours, but then I'm like, okay, <laughs> they're human uh, beings after all. Well, more along the lines of what are the consequences? Like mm-hmm. how, how far away can we talk, take these consequences? Okay. And so we've got immediate consequences. You have five mafiosas died. Um, say, say they're like big time. Um, in the mafia, and now you have a power vacuum, and now you've then started off a uh, a new uh, a whole set war of wars. Power between, yeah, okay. Between either buy-in factions of the mafia or two different, uh, you know, uh, criminal organizations, and does that actually cause more uh, death and destruction by killing off these five because they were, you know, at least maintaining order in their the criminal enterprise. Uh, I don't. It's really hard in that regard because, you know, if, if you're just going to cont- uh, contain it to that exact moment, yeah, yeah. Um, but it, uh, once you you go a year down the road, it's really hard to see the the effects that are going to happen. Yeah, it becomes difficult to predict all the myriad different new timelines that it generates. You could say, yeah. Right. But that's also true for any of these particular uh, scenarios. You don't yeah. know what you don't know going down the track of these different uh, potential histories. That's quite true. And, you know, and she brings in all sorts of other cool variants. I mean, if you haven't read the article, we'll, we'll put links to where you can find these in the show notes. Cause they're well worth checking out. Um, she's got some cool cases about doctors and patients in hospitals. I mentioned one where, so I'll narrate it. This, this guy, this guy's a doctor. He's got five patients. I think, Two of them need lung transplants. One needs a heart two transplant. Two, two need liver. One need, one need heart. Kidney. I think no. Two two need kidneys. Uh, kidneys. Yeah. 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 And so you know they're they're you know how it is with donor lists. Uh, they're just not going to get it, and they're all going to die that day. And in comes a healthy guy for his checkup, or maybe a flu shot, or whatever it's going to be. Nothing fatal. And the doctor says to him, "Listen, I got a conundrum here." 
I got these five patients, they're all going to die. You could really make a contribution here by letting me cut up your organs. Now, you would die in the process, and you know, but you would be really benefiting humankind. And then the guy says, no, I'm going to pass on that. Um, I kind of like to live. And then the doctor says, oh, okay. And then he like shoots him up with a drug or hits him over the head or whatever it's going to be. And he harvests his organs anyway, and he saves those five lives. Well, that's a net gain of five over one, isn't it? And yet we should see this as morally repugnant. And then she goes into all sorts of other like interesting things. Well, what if the doctor is actually responsible for these five people having organ failure because he he gave them a drug a year ago that caused these organ failures? Now he's just kind of setting things right by <laughs> taking this poor guy off the street and killing him. And, you know, he is doing something objectively evil and wrong, but he's also, you know, kind of balancing things out from his previous evil evil actions. How should we, you know, think about that one is, is what she says. And there's, there's other interesting things about, you know, gases in a hospital that would kill patients being diverted. And, uh, you know, you can, you can read these for yourself. It's quite ingenious, the things that she comes up with. Um, the other thing that I do want to mention, you know, and this starts getting us into the pop culture land. She talks about the villains who create this, these situations, who tied the people down to the track, right? Right. And how should we look at on. them? Yeah, I mean, it's sort, yeah. of, it's sort of like when, um, I forget which movie it was, maybe you know, Dan, where Batman is facing off against, I think, Heath Ledger's Joker, and like there's people on one end of town that he can save, and yes. people on, which, which one was that? Do you remember? That's, um, oh, it's one of the dark, uh, the dark night, Knight, ones, right? The Dark Knight, oh, and it's the, uh, the Joker one? has okay. no. It's it's the second one. It's Batman Begins, and then the Dark Knight is the second of the Nolan trilogy. Okay. Um, and so we have Harvey Dent, um, uh, in one area, and then uh, Rachel Bruce Wayne's uh, love interest in the other. Um, and they have him, um, what at the police station, and you know. Well, there's yeah. a, a number of different things. You have this d- dilemma and decision. And another thing to hold the whole thing is that like Batman is like, um, basically trying to torture the Joker out of telling him like what's going on and where I can go and save these people. And so there, there's a That's whole right. extra yeah. dilemma of like, should he be doing that? Even though it's going to result in like this benefit at the end. Um, yeah. But what was yeah, the, no. the question, especially is like you. It's also a flip because um, he does tell them where they are, um, but he he flips where the actual locations are, and so he's giving him bad That's information, right. even though it is true in one sense. He gives them the location, but not the but flips the who's where, showing that he is truly a villain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now. Now, um, not foot, but but Thompson has a really weird consideration here. And when I when I read this piece, this is one of the places where I'm like, yeah, I don't know what she's actually doing with this. It's the idea is that you should not act in such a way as to improve the moral record, as she calls it, of a villain by choosing in such a way that the the threat the villain imposes doesn't actually get enacted against the five. For me, I think that doesn't – you shouldn't worry about that. But she seems really quite 
concerned about that. Did you have any ideas about about this passage where she's saying you shouldn't, you know, improve the record of of bad people? It, it, it that doesn't quite gel with me either. Like <laughs> it, it's it's it, the the bad person's action, um, and and I can try to mitigate the damage that this bad person is doing, but it shouldn't be for the benefit of this villain. It's just to try to have a better outcome. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe with some of these articles, it doesn't make that much sense to buy into everything that they say. Um, and, and in order to get to the other stuff, cause we're already getting a little bit long with this, I'll, I'll just mention part of her solution. She talks about, a what she calls a distributive exemption for rights. So when when you're turning the trolley onto the track and running over the one person, you're violating their right to life, right? Mm -hmm. And she says that we can have an in we can allow an intervention into the world to get an object that already threatens death to those many, instead threaten death to these few, but only by acts that are not themselves gross impingements on the few. So you can't use means that infringe in, in str stringent rights of the, f the few in order to get their distributive intention carried out. And that's rather abstract. The idea is that you, you can, in fact, divert a danger that's going to kill many more people onto a danger, uh, onto just a few people. So, you know, it, she talks about avalanches as an example, right? If you can put one person in the, in the course of the avalanche rather than a hundred, it's okay to do that. Um, and th in that sort of case, you're allowed to violate their rights. You're not allowed to do it in other cases, like the poor guy who walks into the hospital, right? Right. And, yeah. and I would throw in, like there's also like role based rights or role based duties here, um, pulling in from a different set of moral axioms. Yeah. You know, the look at the Hippocratic oath as a doctor. Good example. The, the yeah. first, the first duty is to do no harm, and you know obviously uh, intentionally killing one person in order to save the others is violating that original duty for the doctor. Yeah, and, and I think we can come up with similar role. I mean, we could talk about like parents and children, maybe, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and this is where it gets really tricky. What if it's f diverting the trolley, you know, from the five people who you don't know onto a track where your child is? I think a lot of parents would probably say, sorry, but I'm going to let it run, you know. Mm -hmm. What do we make of that, you know? Um so this is a good place to talk about how we get from <laughs> the original stuff to the trolley problem that we all know and love and fear and argue about incessantly. Well, I, quickly, I would just want to add yeah. one more like duty. Um, so the, the trolley conductor in Philippa's original version of this um, has two positive duties. Um, one not to hit the one person, and another duty not to hit the five person. Yeah, and so you have two equal duties, um, or at least equal category of duty, and then you can just quantify the the amount of that. Whereas um, when we're talking about the bystander, uh, you have removed that positive duty. 
Yeah, the bystander at the switch is different, and this is why, this is why I think it becomes the trolley problem. So mm-hmm. it gets reframed generally in terms of is it okay to flip the switch or not, and that gets framed in terms of moral theories. So on the one side, if you do flip the switch, that's usually taken as representative of what we call consequentialist or even utilitarian thinking, where you're saying, I need to minimize the harm or maximize benefits. I need to like have the better outcomes. And then there's deontological moral theories, and these could be um, that of Immanuel Kant, not using humanity as a means. It could be rights-based. It could be, you know, other things. And those typically say, don't flip the switch. Um, and, and the distinction that gets made there is, if I flip the switch, I'm doing something. Whereas if I don't flip the switch, even though I could have, I'm not actually doing something to those five people. I'm just letting things happen as they they go. Now, I'm I'm kind of curious. If we frame it only like that, do you flip the switch or not, Dan? Oh, um, I flip the switch to one all the time. Me too. Uh, now, does that mean that we're utilitarians? Or... Because that's the way a lot of people take it. You're either yeah. utilitarian or you're a deontologist. Well, like, how do you? How I, do you I'm do definitely uh, a little bit of both. <laughs> you know, I guess. The, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, in I, uh, sorry. Um, it, this is the whole point of this being a dilemma because it is. Yeah. Um, it is trying to put you in a position. It, um, and, and I guess one of the, the, the kind of guiding lights for my personal morality is that if I see something that is right to do and I it's costing me nothing to do it, then I should be doing that. And uh, under yeah. the uh, the purely, um, you know, I don't know who these, there's just five versus one, uh, under that categorization of this particular problem, um, then yeah, I, I flip the switch. For me, I'm, you know, I'm basically a virtue ethicist and a lot of people would take that as, well, you can't be utilitarian in any way then. And I kind of think, no, there's actually a lot of cases where you're going to, where the right thing to do is to, to choose the utilitarian um, solution to something, you know. Uh, Robert Audi actually has a really excellent article on this. He's a contemporary uh, virtue ethicist. Um, but he says that, uh, Virtue ethics and even deontological ethics ought to use cost-benefit analyses when it makes sense to do so. So mm-hmm. I think this is one of those cases where it's almost a no-brainer. You you know, one versus five. I'm I'm gonna take the the saving the five. You know, right. Now th- there's this becomes what we call trolleyology. It's a new term. <laughs> And um, Frank Bosman wrote something interesting about this. He says, the rise of trolleyology resulted in the trolley problem leaving the exclusive realm of academic philosophy for the complex world of popular culture, where it gained fame for the masses but lost some of its original philosophical finesse. What do you think? Did, did it lose some of its philosophical finesse or did it gain some in the process? It definitely Gain some silly things, but like, I'm a firm believer that silliness can lead to some actually interesting and deeper philosophical thoughts. You know, uh, yeah, I mean, the 
there there are a lot of other funny thought experiments, right? And um, the silliness that you're talking about, I mean, we, we've referenced the good place. I don't know if the trolley, I'm sure the trolley problem comes up in some other essentially sitcoms. Um, mm-hmm. Or I, I don't know if, if maybe the good place isn't a sitcom as such, but it's definitely a comedy. Um, so sure, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think and it, there is some silliness involved in it. Um, and this is kind of interesting, too. A lot of people are like, I'm not a fan of The Good Place because when, I, when I've when i watched the few episodes of it I watched, I found that the philosophy was a little bit too uh, too reductive and and I, I found the, the people a little bit, you know, it kind of flip in the way that like the people who always want to like, if they find out that you're into philosophy and they're like, oh, I've seen some Monty Python sketches and you're like, yeah, that was funny like 30 years ago, but... After the 20th time hearing the philosopher song, I'm kind of over it. You know, the good place for me was was always kind of like that. I know they have a philosopher on staff, but that doesn't necessarily make it great. But on the other hand, it is bringing it bringing these ideas to not thousands, but millions of people who otherwise would not have encountered them. So maybe there is a good you know, utilitarian case there for these kinds of shows uh, being the way in which we teach people philosophy. I, I kind of think of it as, you know, a a really kind of dumbed down uh, intro philosophy course. Yeah. At least for the first season or two. Then it gets into, um, it gets into a little bit more like the, the first season specifically yeah. of that show is, is very much like, hey, let's like talk about like some high level ideas here, yeah. and and if you look at it as just a popularization of ideas that are a road that will lead to potentially greater understanding, yeah, then great. I think it's it's useful in that case if we're talking about it being um, actually good deep philosophy. I don't think it really gets there until the last season. Okay, um, but because the last season is basically the um, oh the the head philosophy on, philosopher on staff is basically his like dissertation and book. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, trying to be realized. See, as you were talking about it, I kind of thought so. The good place is sort of like the equivalent of the, and I'm putting this with air quotes, the cool professor who all the students like but gives them kind of like watered down stuff and he gets the great evaluations because he's joking around all the time in class but he never really goes that deeply into the material and then 10 years later when you're at a party and you quote something that he told you and people are like no that's that's wrong (laughs) you feel kind of like a like a fool for having been taken in but he didn't know any better because you you know he was your professor so right uh and we see this in other places where there's popularization of um, certain things. For example, is Ryan Holiday in the oh you know, stoicism, stoicism yeah, community, yeah, which you know he's got some interesting stuff, but I wouldn't call most of it deep. Um, and it but it has brought a lot of people into uh, at least reading some of the more deep stuff that you can actually find in stoicism. So yeah, I guess kudos to him for that particular achievement. You know, and I think the the um, response that we could have as people who like have progressed further and want other people to progress further is it's great when it's the gateway drug, but it's bad when that's all people are going to be 
stopping with. If, if people take it as like, this is what Stoicism is, what Ryan Holiday is teaching, rather than we'll pick another figure, uh, rather than what Donald Robertson or Chris Gill is teaching, um, then we've got a problem, right? And so with the trolley problem, maybe we want to say something similar. We, we would like people to go deeper into it than just what these pop culture things are. Although the rest of the show, we're going to basically be talking about pop culture. <laughs> so <laughs> who are we to cast stones, right? I mean, do you, do you want to talk about some of the uh, psychological stuff? We, we have enough time for that, you think? Probably, right? I'm or this um, experiment I put in here. That and and we could also talk about the oh, self-driving yes. car issues. But yeah, tell us about this experiment that that. Okay, so in 2014, um, Natalie Gold, Andrew M. Coleman, and Brody D. Pulford did a, a study in untitled cultural differences in response to real life and hypothetical trolley problems, and. Just as we're talking about like the differences and why certain people might choose one thing over the other, um, there's a, their idea was there is there potentially a difference based on the cultural milieu that people grow up in mm. in how they respond to this particular problem, and so they had a um, couple of experiments uh, with different formulations of the trolley problem some that are more just financial based but some are that are actually you know straight up the trolley problem okay um, with about 200 people uh, in it and the major groups were a contingent of uh, british people and a contingent of chinese and they found that there was a statistically different a uh, significantly sorry a statistically significant difference in the response rates to um, flipping the switch or not, of which the Chinese, in comparison to the British, um, were uh, regularly less likely to hit the switch. And a lot of the um, participants that did not choose to fit the switch that were of, um, specifically the Chinese contingent, uh, gave fate as oh, interesting. A, a major contributor to why they decided to think, do this. And so I guess this is a little bit out of, um, like, I guess, partly um, Confucianism. I'm going to hold that back and say, I don't know. But apparently um, the idea that they, they should not be interfering in the way that things are going to actually happen, that to let fate uh, do its uh, course was a strong indicator for why they would choose not to, whereas the British yeah. were much less likely to believe in fate and were more likely to uh, flip the switches. That's interesting. And I, I bet if we did similar experiments, we could find all sorts of variations, not only between like large scale, you know, world cultures, but also maybe along class lines or maybe along uh, gender lines or, or things like that, you know? An another um, response from that is the uh, older that you got, the more likely you are to flip the switch. Wow. So you now that's kind of counterintuitive, but that's that's an interesting finding. I'll, I'll bring up a, just a very short thing about another study that was carried out. Um, they looked at the by, you know bystander at the switch. You flip the switch or you don't flip the switch, and the fat man, where you actually have to physically push the fat man off onto the tracks, thereby causing his death to stop the trolley. 
And they, they asked people who thought that these were like one's okay, the other one's not okay for justifications. And they um, classified the justifications into sufficient justifications that were ones that pointed out at least one difference between the two cases. Um, insufficient justifications where they failed to do that. So maybe saying that, you know, five lives are more important one than one, but not explaining why. And then discount, this is really interesting, discountable objections, which is kind of a code word for crazy, off the wall, has nothing to do with the case kind of objections, <laughs> you know, like uh, a man's body cannot stop a train. I guess people trying to wiggle out of the, the story. And then they found out that once you got rid of the discountable, really out there objections, only 30% of the remaining justifications were sufficient justifications. People could partly articulate, but not very well, why they thought these were different, which is kind of a bad sign. I mean, if you can't explain why you should do the right thing, does that, you know, does that get in the way of doing the right thing some of the time? Probably so, right? Especially if there's more than one person involved in the decision making. Right. Uh, you know, and I, this is basically the way that most humans make decisions mm. as we we have kind of That's this right. instinct of how what is right and wrong, and we just act on those. And or we talk with other people, but we're kind of you know inarticulate and in saying, "Well, what do you what do you think? What should we do?" You know? <laughs> yeah, and there's not like a basis from which I'm building a actual decision. Yeah, but it's just like, well, you know, I was uh, raised up to you know not hit anyone or not to push, and so maybe that was like one of those like intrinsic thoughts in you that are like yeah. well i shouldn't be pushing this guy that that violates a really you know basic norm <laughs> of society um but I, mean, I can't like exactly articulate that when we're talking about this particular thing yeah i mean if people can't like prioritize between i shouldn't push people and i shouldn't push people into into deadly you know uh jeopardy or something like that we're in real problems right mm -hmm. so well, let's talk about the, the self-driving cars thing, because I think this is kind of interesting. Um, you know, we're, we're going to see a lot of technology with uh, machines being called on to make decisions. And so MIT created something called the moral machine, not just a experiment, but a whole set of scenarios that you can find at uh, moralmachine.net. And they were really interested in situations where it got a little bit more granular, where it wasn't just, you know, one versus five. They started saying, well, you got to hit somebody. Is it a woman or a man? Young person, old person, you know? And then they even went to like lawful pedestrians over jaywalkers. Is it okay to, you know, is it okay to like, if somebody's where they're not supposed to be, is it, is it better to kill them than to kill somebody else? Or, you know, humans over animals. Um, there was another thing involved where a self-driving car could swerve to kill its passengers or save them by hitting various groups of pedestrians. Now, who, who, who should... Who should the car kill, you know? I mean, those of us, there might be a little bit of class envy here. I mean, those of us who don't have a lot of money might say, well, obviously, if you're rich enough to uh, afford a self-driving car, the car should kill you, you know, rather than endangering other people whose lives, you know, are, are not quite as good as yours. Um, I doubt the driver what would say that. What are you talking about? Way. Don't you know the people that have more money are inherently better people? <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, that's the way they definitely see it, right? Mm. So, and this is really interesting stuff. Have you have you ever played around on that site? 
yeah, it, it's crazy. Like you get like a, a woman and her child versus like two nuns. Yeah, or, it gets, it gets really uh, uh, specific, doesn't it? Right, and, and you'll add in like pets and stuff, and like it's just trying to like it's trying to find that line. But like the same problem exists here that we were kind of like talking about when I was talking about this British versus Chinese. The role stuff. Well, the role stuff too. Roles, but I've been talking about specifically that like different cultures might have different answers to these things. Oh. It's not like there's some perfect line of the sand that will suffice for every single group. But and I assume that the most people that are using the moral machine are uh, probably Western and uh, fairly yeah, affluent true. because they're on this website. Well, they're they're my students because I have them play around with it too, and we do ethics <laughs> classes, and we do. And you know what I do to in the context of utilitarianism, um, mm-hmm. like when we're in that unit, I'm like, hey, you should check this out, and and some of them do. Um, yeah, it's kind of a an interesting quandary, right? There's a really great yeah. uh, passage that that we we've got here too from uh, Carl uh, Yanagama, um, or sorry, uh, yeah. Yagnama, uh, boy, I'm having trouble with pronouncing things. Anyway, he says, even if trolley problems were a realistic concern for autonomous vehicles, it's not clear what, if anything, regulators or companies developing these should do about them. The trolley problem is an intensely debated thought experiment precisely because there isn't a consensus on what should be done. So if that's really the case... Maybe this moral machine stuff is not going to be as helpful as we'd like. Right. But interestingly, there's this other um, paper uh, trolled by the trolley problem on what matters for ethical decision making in automated vehicles. Oh, right. By Alexander G. Meering and Alexander. Um, yes. I'm not even going to try it. It starts with them. Um, you can find it for yourself. Um, in which uh, they they come through, uh, at least in this paper, to four kind of competing solutions. Either you try to find some perfectly utilitarian valuation of all potential deaths and choose the course that results in the you know the highest value of the living. Um, which seems like a yeah. really difficult task, um, especially on the fly, and you're going like 60 miles an hour. It's like, how do you like uh, calculate the value? Um, the, another one is like to try to find the least undesirable choice is the best choice, uh, usually through just the amount of death that is made. Um, another one is you know sidestep the utilitarian and move it to a more intentions based choice. Make a decision based on saving lives, knowing that some death is going to happen either way. So we're like trying to just uh, optimize for saving lives. Mm-hmm. But their final conclusion is basically, once again, a sidestepping of the trolley problem, in which they say, okay, trolley problems are vanishingly small. Um, in the real world, they can still happen, but instead of trying to solve the trolley problem oh, with yeah, our yeah, limited yeah. resources to try to put uh, the vehicles in the situation in order to reduce ever having to find a solution to the trolley problem in the first place. 
You know, that reminds me of something that Alistair McIntyre points out. Alistair McIntyre is a great contemporary virtue ethicist, and he's got a, a paper on, on, not on trolley problems, but on moral dilemmas. And he says, do moral dilemmas really exist? Some people say they don't. And he says, no, they really do exist. There are some cases where you have to choose between two evils or two goods, and it's really difficult to choose between them. But he points out that whenever we actually have a genuine moral dilemma, we have a real problem in the, the present, but that's because something got seriously screwed up in the past. Somebody made bad decisions along the way. And now there's not much we can do about that, but this, this, um, sidestepping idea that you're articulating here. It's sort of like saying in the future, let's try to make sure that there's less moral dilemmas. And I, I think that's, that's a great idea, you know, right. if we can do it. Like, yeah. I know. Have the cars drive slower. Um, yeah, that <laughs> might know, that build, might be a, build infrastructure a great that, idea. that helps to potentially reduce the the chance of having pedestrians and cars interacting in the first place. There's lots of other things that we can do to reduce these things to happen, and and that might be if we're talking about how do we you know it kind of a utilitarian sense save lives or have the most good. Maybe <laughs> spending more time on yeah. that is what will actually give us the best outcome. Now, we're going we're gonna to talk very briefly about actual trolley problem memes. And right. you can just Google trolley problem memes and they'll come up. We don't have to try to tell you where to find them or stuff like that. But what you're saying reminds me of one of the memes that we selected, actually one of the ones that you picked out, where it's not a real trolley problem. It, there's a trolley, there's a single track, and there's a whole bunch of people tied to the track. And it says, you can stop the trolley problem at any time. But doing so would disrupt the trolley service, causing the company to lose profits, right? And so you can flip the switch if you want the, the company that's not paying you anything to lose profits. And there would definitely be some Americans who'd be like, nope, free marketplace, got it, can't, can't stop it, got to let it go, you know? Mm -hmm. um, there's another one that's kind of similar to that, where it shows like the trolley having run over a whole bunch of people before, and then there's a whole bunch of people in front, and it says, is it really fair to stop the trolley? Is that fair to the people who are already run over to not run over these, these other people? And of course, the intelligent person's answer would be, yes, let it, let it stop yeah. the trolley. <laughs> but we, I, I believe we that one's called the, the boomer trolley problem. Oh, that because is because it's like, oh well, I went through this, so you have to go through this. And it's like, no, let's just fix the problem. Yeah, uh, you know, I think I, uh, I think I may have brought this up in the past, but when I was in basic training, you know, which which sucks. Um, there were you know there were people who were like, man, when I have rank, I'm never going to treat my soldiers this way. And then there were some people who were like, I can't wait to make rank so I can make somebody else suffer. You know. Uh, I so I, I love the one that you picked. Up, what were, which was what were the some of the other memes that you particularly problem. liked? So the the veil of ignorance trolley problem has okay. Um, you don't know where you'll be in the trolley problem. It's a regular trolley problem, but you can either be um in the end you're going to either be one of the five guys. You're going to be one of the one guys stuck in the track. You'll be uh in the trolley itself, or you can be the one in the switch. And this is uh, from the Veil of Ignorance from, oh, shoot, remind me. Um, John Rawls, yeah. John Rawls, yes. Rawlsian Veil of Ignorance. Rawls is a theory of justice. 
Right. Um, so you don't know where you're going to be in the trolley problem. However, you have the choice uh, to... You have to choose a scenario in advance regarding, regarding personal interests. Would you like to be... Would you like to have the lever pulled? So you don't know if you're going to be on the track or not. <laughs> uh, do you have the person pull the lever or not? You know, if you just think about it in a statistical way you're most likely to be one of the five tied to the track. So I would say, yes, you do want the lever pulled, right? Right. If, if you wind up being the person in the trolley, you don't care because you're going to you know, run over people no matter what. The person at the switch, he's actually, in this case, he doesn't have any responsibility. He's just being told what to do. Right. He's got no agency. Yeah. This. Yeah. But I guess the whole point of the veil of ignorance is that we all make a decision together before we even go into the, the situation. So we all have you know, voted for a how we're going responsibility. to respond. Yes. Yeah. So there is some agency, even for the guy who's pulling the switch, even though the decision was already made. That's true. So there's one that came up in McSweeney's, the uh, internet comedy site, called The Meta-Ethical Problem. And this is – so I'm going to read this, and then we might have time to do a little – Actually, we probably won't have t that much time. Yeah. I'll just read it. There's an out-of-control tro trolley speeding towards Immanuel Kant. You have the ability to pull a lever and change the trolley's path so it hits Jeremy Bentham instead. Jeremy Bentham clutches the only existing copy of Kant's groundwork for the metaphysics of morals. Kant holds the only existing copy of Bentham's, the principles of morals and legislation. Both of them are shouting at you that they have recently started to reconsider their ethical stances. These are the you know utilitarian deontologist the big granddaddies of both of those theories so this is just ingenious i love this one. Oh yeah like it, it just hits on so many perfect levels and then the last one and they're both reconsidering their ethical stances is whoo <laughs> yeah and you know um, it, it's getting you with a double whammy right because so if you save bentham he's got the existing copy of Kant's Groundwork for the Metaphysics of Morals, which then you could read and you could see what Kant has to say about it. So either way, you kind of save both of them, don't you? Except for if uh, they're changing their stances, they might not tell you what they had originally written because they no longer hold to it. All right. Yeah, yeah. that's that's... And they're shouting at you. That's that's great. Well, I, so, I don't think we have time for any more of them. So why don't you lead us out on, on a last final thought? So uh, today we leave you with the words of Kwame Anthony Apaya. Being deluged with trolley problems is one of the professional hazards of modern moral philosophy.